Well, uh, welcome back to uh, Matthew's Gospel, and we head straight into chapter 2 this morning, the third narrative of Matthew's introduction to his book uh, that outlines the incredible events surrounding uh, the the, the birth of Jesus that we're looking at during this Advent period. And before we head into it, um, it's an obvious but important thing to remind ourselves of. Uh, right at the beginning, that Matthew's, what Matthew's reason for writing is. It's the same with any gospel writer, and that is to write true factual history to explain true, incredible, and miraculous events concerning this person called the Lord Jesus Christ and the reasons behind them happening. And at no time in the, has the pursuit of truth, I think, be more important or more under threat than in our postmodern Western societies, particularly, I reckon, over the past 30 or 40 years or so. For it is very fair to say that in the West, we've lost any real sense of a true eternal objective reality of a God that underpins our universe. Now, there's nothing clever or new in stating that. That's just true. We all know that. That's been a recognized feature of our society for the past 30, 50 years or whatever. We have outgrown our Christian moorings, if you like, and our generation has little concept of a true, objective, living God who can be known and little concept of a true, objective, and absolute morality. However, I would go one step further and say that our very recent history would point to an increasing trend where we are beginning to lose any concept of an objective and absolute reality. So we've not just lost sight of God and there being a creator. We've not just lost sight of of morality and the underpinnings of what a human is, but we've lost an objective view on what is real at all, on whether there can be even something known as truth, whether we can even experience the same kind of things together. The past five years, um, Endless Inc. and Web Space has been given over to Smarting as a recent president of the United States of America, for example, who would knowingly lie and say it is true even when all corroborated material has been brought to him to prove that the numbers he quotes are false, that the stats he uses are false, the arguments he makes are verifiably false. He doesn't flinch. He believes in, and I quote, alternative facts. I just have another, another track of reality that I'm on that no one else seems to be. To the point where millions of people genuinely, truly believe an entire electorate was bought and an election was stolen, despite an imaginable volume of evidences against that. It doesn't matter that that's just not my truth. And Donald Trump isn't new, is he? He's just an extreme example of where we've been for decades in the postmodern West. Everyone has their own truths. And your truth can't hamper my truth. And we all believe what we like to believe, and we're all going to get on fine. That is, until someone like Trump uses it to to the ends that he does to incite violence or to crush others, and suddenly we don't like it. The most heretical thing one could say nowadays is that there is one universal truth that unites everything, that that is total anathema in our age. Well, now, Matthew's gospel, as he spins out for us this advent and birth narrative of Jesus, presents a totally different reality to all that, to the sort of postmodern Donald Trump reality. For as we go through these few chapters of Matthew, and in fact, if we were to go through the whole gospel, as we will one day, I hope and pray, we see that it stands in stark contrast to the modern and postmodern sort of moral and religious relativist who believes in multiple truths. Matthew unashamedly presents us with only one author to all the world's events, 
An author who only has one plot and one purpose in history and the future of the world, and only one star, one star character, if you like, one star performer on his creation stage, by whom, in whom, and through whom he is going to achieve his one purpose, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's star. And by putting us in touch with this star the, the, and, and with the historicity of this star through his careful research, research presentation of the birth of this rising star, Matthew, in his introduction, we are spending time in this Christmas and in the whole of the gospel, enables us, if you like, to, to, to put an anchor down in an age which is windswept by relativism and total lack of trust in the truth and presents us with someone who is true. A truth that spans the ages of history of the present of the future Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of Mary, the Son of God. And Jesus' sonship is where we left off last week, wasn't it? If you remember. Jesus' sonship having been rammed home with dead certainty by Matthew. The Son of David, the Son of Abraham, week one. God's rightful, true, authentic King for all time and for all peoples. And then we looked at Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, week two. God's rightful, true, authentic kin, who is, who is fully God and fully man. The nature of which reveals this king's mission, the, the human divine Emmanuel, as we were looking at this morning. God himself with us in flesh, the only way God could save sinners by, by dying for us in our place as a human. So having established this, where does Matthew go to next on his pursuit for truth about this Jesus? Well, he goes where no other gospel goes to. And he zooms forward about two years or so, we think, to when Jesus is a toddler, where he is visited by magi, or some wise men. And we're still in the introduction of this gospel, and this moment, we're still sort of in the post-advent nativity infant narrative of Jesus. But there is more, it seems, to Matthew, that needs to be said about this child before we see his ministry as an adult. And the question is, what is it? What else do we need to know about this king born on that first Christmas? And what on earth do these random wise men, or magi, have to do with it? And that brings us to our first point of only two this morning. As we'll see, Matthew uses the true story of these wise men to shore up his claim that Jesus, the one true king, is really here. And here he ties a lot of loose ends together. And those are great questions as to why these men, these wise men, are here in this narrative. And in order to, to answer that, we do need to do a bit of groundwork, a bit of homework, and, and clear away some of the sentimental artistic images that we have of these mysterious men, namely on our Christmas cards, or indeed through the decidedly unhelpful carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. First, I remember doing an SU uh, um, group with some of you on this, um, sort of debunking all the things about the, uh, the, the, the king. So here we go. First, as we know, there aren't necessarily three of them. We know that there are three types of gifts, but it doesn't say how many are visiting Jesus. It could have been a lot more. It could have been two, I suppose. So the text seems to suggest that there might be a number of them, mainly because there's enough of them, it seems, to cause a real stir in the whole of Jerusalem, verse 3. Some people think there might have been as many as 50. Those are the kinds of numbers that sort of traveling groups would have moved around in, if for no other reason, from protection on, on their journey through long distances. So there are a number of wise men, not necessarily three, almost certainly a lot more. That's the first thing we need to debunk. Secondly, they're not necessarily kings. 
Though the Old Testament does suggest, and we'll see this later, that they may have some royalty attached to them. They will have seen, they'll be seen as being king-like, regal in some way, but they're not necessarily established kings as we would expect them to be. They are magi. The ESV has them as, as wise men. Magi is in, the, is in the footnote, meaning they are some kind of mysterious Eastern astrologer, princely pagan priest-type figures that were well-known for, 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 from around Iraq sort of area. Thirdly, they didn't come to the stable or to the room where the manger lay. They went to a house, verse 11. So the images that we might have, these wise men bowing over a baby, well, that's not right. Mary and Joseph are still in, in Bethlehem, but they settle into a, with their new child, it seems, into a proper house by now. Jesus, we reckon, is probably about two or three here, a toddler. All told, I really should think we should write that carol, We Three Kings of Orient Aren't. I'll do it later. Now, all well and good, but that leaves us with the question of what on earth is going on here? Why are these mysterious men included in this narrative? They've only got 13 verses attributed to them, and only in one gospel account, what's their purpose? And how are we to read them? In that, what are we meant to focus on in this passage? Should we focus on the gifts that they give? Should we major in on the fact that they come from the East? Should we take a look at God's sovereign control over the planetary system? We haven't even mentioned the star yet. Or is Herod the focus of this part of the narrative, that the, the Magi being a foil, it seems, for the only one who doesn't want this king to be born, who doesn't want to bow the knee to him? Well, the answer, as is so often the case in the New Testament, especially where the Gospels are concerned, comes from the Old Testament. So, Keep a body part in Matthew, and we're going to turn and do a flick through the Old Testament. Let's turn to Psalm 72 first. Turn your Bibles there if you have them, and let's look at this psalm for a few minutes, because I think this really breaks open this part of Matthew's narrative wide open. Uh, it's on page 485 in your church Bibles, for those of you who have the Black Church Bible. Psalm 72, it acts, Psalm 72, as a sort of national anthem for God's people, the Israelites. Unlike most anthems, however... Uh, that the prayers here in this psalm, that the requests that are made, the praises that are given, that they're not nationalistic or jingoistic or, or, or selfish in any way. Let's just do a really quick run through the whole psalm together. And just follow with me quickly. We can see verses 1 to 4, firstly, that it is, first of all, a prayer for a just, fair, righteous, and compassionate king. That's what we see. Just read those verses with me. Give the king your justice, O God. And your righteousness to the royal son, may he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So it's a prayer for a righteous king. For a king of integrity, who is truly just where there are no double standards, where, unlike the events of the number 10 Christmas party debacle over the last week, and the evasive answers and the squirming of an embattled and slippery pr prime minister, and the shocking and cringingly embarrassing smoking gun footage of that now infamous recorded press conference rehearsal with Allegra Stratton, with this king, the video evidence that is captured of him in private only fully supports what the press and the populace would only ever see in public. True integrity, 
whose every decision, every move, every transaction in the past is open up to deep scrutiny and is not found wanting. This is the king Psalm 72 is asking for, one with a just and righteous rule. Moving on, however, we see that in verses 5 to 7, the prayer moves on to asking for this just king to be eternal and to bring prosperity and blessing to people forever. May they fear you while the sun endures, writes the psalmist. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may this king be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. May this king's days, um, uh, may, may, may the righteous flourish in them and peace abound till the moon be no more. So it's a prayer that this just king's rule would not be a short-lived reign for sort of a five-year period and then the electorate sort of boots him out and we get someone else in. No, the prayer is that it would be enduring. It would be a lasting rule, a rule of security, stability, prosperity for all time. And then verses 8, 8 to 11, the prayer moves on again to ask for this king to have an international and universal rule. And this is where we begin to pick up familiar tones of Matthew 2. Just listen to them. Verse 8, may this king have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bear down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Can you see? This is a prayer for this just king to have an international and universal rule. Visited by kings from the east, who will bring gifts? Kings who will bow down before him. But more than that, look at what comes next in, ver in this psalm, verses 12 to 14. This king, just, eternal, universal, won't be just interested in wealthy rulers. He, he won't simply offer handouts to his mates, like our politicians, to his financial supporters. Everyone will benefit who cry out to him. 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor of him who has no help. He has pity on the weak and on the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. Long live the king and so on. The king in this anthemic psalm is fully just, fully eternal, universal, fated by other kings, and he is for all kinds of people. So do you see, with the mentioning of, if you remember from the last few weeks, and the history behind Abraham that Matthew has already wanted us to be aware of from verse 1 of his gospel that is still sort of ringing in our ears, or it should be, that this prayer in Psalm 72 is a prayer that picks up on and develops God's promise to Abraham that his long-promised king would reign righteously, endure endlessly, and rule boundlessly over every nation, over every people, one unifying ruler, every nation throughout the world recognizing him for who he is, every single people group. But let's keep Psalm 72 in our minds as we turn now to Isaiah, the great prophet that Matthew spends a lot of time gleaning from. And we're going to pick him up in chapter 60. 60. That's page 619 for those of you who have your church Bibles. And let me just read this through. It'll be on, um, it'll be in, uh, on page 619. Chapter 60, um, verse 1. Arise, shine. This is Isaiah. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light, this king, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nation shall come to you, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba again shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Can you see? Again, notice the language. Nations and kings shall come to the brightness, to these kings rising, to the dawn, Sons shall come from afar, multitudes of camels shall come to this king from Sheba in the, in the southeast. They shall bring our, our Matthew 2 radars are firing again, aren't they, as we read through this? But there's more. Before we take a breather, we can now turn to Micah 5. The well-known Christmas promise that we'll hear read tonight that Matthew himself quotes in our passage this morning. God tells us here that this ruling figure, this reigning eternal king, will be born where? in a nowhere town called Bethlehem. Page 778 in your Bibles. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his people shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So with all that in our minds, let's turn back to Matthew 2. And as we do, let's just pause for a moment and take stock. There is, in history, a promise from God that there will be an international universal king of supreme purity who will break into history and who will uh, rule all people everywhere for all time with justice and righteousness, one who will not rule despotically but as a shepherd, as a, as a savior shepherd king, and he will have a rule that will know no boundaries, will have no end, and he will be of old, he will come from the ancient of days. Geographically, this king will be born in Bethlehem. Historically, Micah tells us he will come from the line of David, the king of Israel. Prophetically, Isaiah tells us that he will be brought gifts of gold and frankincense, and that those bringing these gifts will bear good news of the praises of the Lord, the, the gospel, if you like. And they will come from Sheba and Seba in the east, and they will bow down to him. Astronomically, Isaiah tells us that God's light will rise over him and dawn on him, down on him, and the nations will be drawn to his light. Notice Matthew 2 in that? Theologically, all these writers, and indeed the whole of the Old Testament story, points towards God's plan to send his eternal divine ruler to establish his rule over all nations. And just as we pause, looking over the brink, if you like, into Matthew chapter 2, remember what we said every week in Matthew so far. It is not such an odd thing 
that this is how God would break into his world, that this is all being said and happening in this way if God was to break into his world. This is how he would do it, miraculously prophesied, warned about, foreshadowed, so that we wouldn't miss him with his promises fulfilled and acted upon, coming true. But also, if God is a good God, and he is, is this not absolutely the king that we would expect and desire? For this kind of king, this kind of ruler, is exactly what any of us would dream of. And we are deeply cynical and hard-hearted in the extreme, if we were to say otherwise. Whatever anyone may think of the Bible, you cannot deny that the vast majority of people around us that we would know in our society, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our friendship group, that, that they would crave a king or a boss or a leader like this. Look at the vitriol against Boris Johnson this week. People despise a leader whose word is not his bond, who is slippery, has no scruples, has a, has a curious relationship with the truth, as one commentator put it. He has one rule for him and another rule for everyone else. We don't like kings like that, or Donald Trump and his barefaced, audacious lying, using it deliberately to inflame and incite, or Nicola Sturgeon may be in her single policy at any cost kind of politics, or Emmanuel Macron and his petulance wanting to be significant, or Putin, his thirst for empire, Xi Jinping, his desire for order, power, dominion, whatever it is, whoever it is, or, or me, not as a world leader or anyone significant, but as a human, marked by all those traits and a few more. What we wouldn't give for the king of Psalm 72, for the king of Isaiah 9, for the king of Isaiah 60, for the king of Micah 5, a king where everyone under him is united and one and safe. Listen to these words uh, from a modern-day New Age prayer. And I, I, I think we'll all know them. They come from John Lennon, his song, Imagine. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. To some extent, that is a genuine cry of the human heart, I think, you see. Imagine indeed <laughs> when we didn't have to worry about possessions or panic about them, or fear losing them. Can you imagine that? It'd be great. Where there was no greed or hunger. And the Bible says, Matthew 2 says, to that kind of prayer, well, imagine no more. The, the king who brings the brotherhood of man together under this kind of paradise is here. John Lennon was just looking for it in all the wrong places. For that kind of universal reality. He looks for it in his own prayer outside of God. He says, imagine that there is no God in this very song. My answer to this reality is that we want to get rid of God as if removing God's going to help him achieve this. It's ridiculous. This perfect rule and this perfect life that he wishes and yet he desires, the only way he thinks he can get there is without this king. He doesn't want that king involved. Well, the Bible says that's impossible. You're looking for this kind of dream in all the wrong kind of places and you are denying the king that we all know we desire and we all know what we need. There is no way humanly 
John Lennon's prayer comes true, is there? It is a pipe dream, it is a fantasy, it is madness, a vainglorious and a very arrogant hope. No one human is going to unite the world under anything, let alone under a good and perfect rule. We need to stop looking at a human solution. The tragic events, evidence of human history, the the tragic evidence of our own hearts, of my heart. If I were to be interrogated and the depths of my heart turned into a film and shown on the screen behind me for you all to see, it'll show that none of us are up for fulfilling that task. So this is where we turn to Matthew 2. But once we've got the background in place, it begins to make sense of what is going on in this mysterious visit from these mysterious astrologers, from deep in the heart of ancient Near East, what are they here for? Well, Matthew records the facts of this incident to show us that this king, this perfect king that we all desire and imagine and long for, this Psalm 72 king, is here. And he is here geographically. Verses 4 and 5 and 6. The evidence of the king that has been promised and prophesied is now definitively here. Herod assembled all the chief priests, the scribes of the people. Verse 4. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And when they worked out that it was there where the star had settled, they rejoiced. Geographically, it's true, shouts Matthew. What was promised of this king has come to pass. He was born in Bethlehem. Historically and, and, and prophetically, it's true too. He is here, verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They said that the king would be rejoiced over exceedingly in Isaiah 60. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The prophet said gifts would be given by these kings, king-like men from the east, that these gifts would include gold and frankincense. That's what's happened literally. This is like a massive, totally obvious sort of flashing klaxon alarm pointing at Bethlehem. You really can't miss this, guys, says Matthew. Furthermore, as Isaiah said, these regal gift givers would bear good news of the praises of the Lord. That's what these wise men do. Have you noticed that? They worship the baby, but more than that, they proclaim the good news of this baby being born. Verse 3, did you see it? They, they walk into Jerusalem, the center of God's nation, and declare, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we want to worship him. Can you see? They are the good news bearers. They are gospel bearers. It is these foreigners, note, that are the first to announce the birth of King Jesus to all Israel. Isn't that interesting? The king of the Jews has been born, they say, and he is to be worshipped by everyone. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Historically and prophetically, the king is definitively here, exactly as the prophet said he would be. Astronomically, he's here as well. Whatever this star is that these wise men have picked up on, whether it's a comet or planet aligning, and there are a number of contenders for this astronomical event, what it designates is what Isaiah is wanting us to know and is far more important, that Jesus is rising in the earth. That this star-like sign is a sign of creation, or the dawn, as Isaiah's prophecy has it, assenting to this star character of God's plan in the earth. As John has it, His light has dawned. Theologically, he is here too, says Matthew. 
Can you see what is so very obviously happening theologically? Right at the beginning of this international king's rule, here are the first of the nations touching down, if you like, as they head into Bethlehem to bow the knee to God's universal ruler. This king, the son and seed of Abraham, who was to be a blessing to the nations globally, is here, and the pagan Gentile nations are beginning to recognize him, their king. It's incredible, isn't it? How could you miss it, says Matthew? The prophecies and the signs, especially these wise men, they're all very obvious flashing arrows pointing to this king being born in exactly the way that they said he would be, down to the very smallest details. And this is where Matthew's gospel, written many years ago to a predominantly Jewish audience, speaks to our non-Jewish secular age. We live in an age where, as I've said, confidence in the objective, universal, eternal God is, is, has evaporated. But Matthew's gospel takes us back hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, records for us the unchanging promises of a faithful and unchanging God. And by recording all the facts of the wise men's visit, detail by detail, matching up detail by detail with the greater prophets, he lays out for us the reality of God fulfilling his plan. And as the wise men come, what is Matthew saying? Well, the one true king really has arrived. And the nations, the Gentiles, are coming to him. He is here. It is true. His sovereign rule has begun. We know, don't we, that all the benefits of this king that God promises to us are, are, are not with us in full now. For there is something still to happen to this king, as we know there's an end to this story just as Jesus came again one time, he will come again a second time and then fully deploy his rule. And he will do that after an astonishing act, one that we looked at last week as we saw Jesus' mission to save sinners through dying on the cross. So we've seen the same thing sort of foreshadowed here in our passage, the gifts of these wise men. All passingly speaking to the kind of king he will come, gold for sovereignty. He is a king who will rule frankincense used in the temple. He will be a priest king who will represent his people before God on, on their behalf and intercede for their salvation. How will he do that? Well, through the application of myrrh, the spice for the embalming of the dead. This king will suffer and die. This king is born to die and to rise from the dead and to return no longer as a baby in a manger, but in victory and power to uphold his eternal rule with all its benefits. This is the major thrust of this passage then. In our shifting postmodern relativistic world, we can look along the timeline of history, and much like a stick of rock you can break in any place, 4,000 years BC, 2,000 years BC, 700 BC, 33 AD, 2021, 2029, 2060... You see, God's eternal plan and purpose is the same over and over and over and over again. He is sending his king. He has sent his king. His king is here, and his king will come again. But very briefly, as we draw to a close, there is something else here in this passage which is glaring in its contrast to these wise men, which also sets the tone of what this king will achieve, and it's highlighted by King Herod. That brings us to our closing point. As Matthew proves the one true king is now here, so he also reveals two opposing reactions to this one true king. There is one plot, one purpose, one star character, one king, but there is not one universal response to him. The wise men, in spite of all the odds, come to worship this baby 
boy king. When you think about it, geographically, everything was against them. They come from deep within the heart of Iraq, so we assume something of a 500-mile journey, and yet they still come. Culturally, historically, politically, everything stands against them coming. They're not Jews. Why on earth should they, of all people, bow down to this Jewish baby, and yet they come? The ancient Near East nations, much like our modern Near East nations, are bitter rivals. Why should they come to Jerusalem? Theologically, everything stands against them. They don't have the word of God. They don't have his promises. They have none of the Jews' privileges. They don't have the covenant, uh, the, the covenant promises, none of the prophets, none of the understanding of who creator God Yahweh is, and yet they come to worship him. No trouble is too great. They drop everything. They saddle their camels. They leave their homes. They will not be put off from coming. No cost is too high. They bring their possessions. They're precious possessions, and they are precious. And they lay them down before the feet of a child. No words are sufficient. Verse 10, the words translate here, literally, when they saw his star, they rejoiced a great, great joy, exceedingly, exceedingly. In modern parlance, they went nuts for this king. No words are sufficient. That The joy was excessive. And they come and they not only lay gifts before him, but they lay themselves before him. They bow down and worship. This isn't just a quick hour's ritual of duty to keep God happy, sort of passing over gifts like the president would with the queen when he comes on a state visit and there's awkward posh chat and it's flattering soupy how do you do's. They prostrate themselves. As Isaiah says, they sort of bite the dirt. They hit the floor. They take their place beneath the level of this baby. They bring everything to his feet, even themselves. They are, as we've seen before in all of the Gospels that we looked at together, they are model disciples of King Jesus. As we sit here this morning, as we as a church on the edge of Western City, 2,000 years later, we can identify this, with this. We are not Jewish. We are a 1,000 miles away from Israel, from their promises of their King, their God, theologically, culturally, historically, geographically, and yet here we are. Many nations represented in this small room, in this small church, having given our lives to the king born at Christmas. That is one response to this king. A full-bodied, all-in, everything-given-over response. And then there's the other response to this king, a shaken-but-not-stirred response, if you like. Herod the not-so-great, verse 3. A king disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when they heard about the birth of this king. Herod is shaken by this king. Jerusalem is terrified by this king, but not stirred enough to do anything about him. You go and worship him if you want to, says King Herod. And I wonder if that might be the response of someone here listening this morning. Coming week by week or watching and listening online and you know Jesus the king and you're shaken by him, you're intrigued by him, but you're not stirred by him. There's too much cost, too much to give over. I can't give my academic career over, my professional represent, uh, a reputation, or, or, or my family. It's just too much. I can't give that over to this king. I can't worship him. Ultimately, Herod's response was a totally opposite response, as opposite as opposite could be to the wise men. One that eventually said, you know what? I won't give you my body and worship King Jesus, but I will remove you from me by killing yours getting rid of you from my life, because literally with Herod and spiritually with us, I want to be king. And I will not let you take my throne. If you're on the fence with this king, this Christmas, I hope and pray, is the time when you come 
become a wise man or a wise woman. Someone who sees the king for who he is in all his universal truth and his universal rule and bow the knee and give yourself to him and then reap the benefits of being someone who is ready for an eternal rule with him. And you really can come to him today and he is ready to receive you into his house and leave you rejoicing with a joy that is exceedingly great. Over the past three weeks, in three different ways, Matthew has been telling us that this king is here, definitively here, totally here, undeniably here, truthfully here. And for the first time, we see today that as much as this king will achieve the impossible and do incredible things and save the nations of the world in him, he will not be universally received. And so for now, right from the start of this gospel, says Matthew, God's king is here, he has arrived, and so be prepared. What will your response be to him? Will you receive him? Let's pray together as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for your goodness to us through the person of your son, King Jesus, who was born to rule and who was born to rule in righteousness for an eternity in the line of David under under the headship of his father, God, who he obeyed to the point of death, dying for our sake on the cross, taking all our sin, bearing the punishment that we deserved, and rising again from the dead, such that in Jesus Christ we are found uh, to be righteous as we repent of our sin, as we follow this king, as we bow the knee like these wise men did, and as we follow him through death into an eternal life where his rule and reign will know at no end. Father God, please, please help us to treat this king very seriously. Help us to obey him, to love him. Help us to bow down to him. Help us to repent to him, keeping short accounts with him. Forgive us for our sin, Father. Help us through your grace to set us back right with you um, such that we may love this Jesus more and be willing to tell more people about him. We pray over this Christmas time, the people that we hope and pray will come into this space. For those who are watching online, those that we know and love who, who don't yet know you, we pray that they would see this King Jesus for who he really is, that they would become wise men and wise women and bow the knee and know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.